The true story of Theranos is stranger than fiction. From its conception to its downfall, this Silicon Valley startup reveals truths about human nature and questions about its founder. In Bad Blood, John Carreyrou exposes Elizabeth Holmes as a fraud and crafts a narrative about the power of FOMO, the fear of missing out. You don't have to like nonfiction, business, science, or medicine to enjoy this story. It's a page-turning tale about human nature, privilege, and justice. We read and loved Bad Blood over summer, and it got us thinking about the appeal of investigative journalism in general. Welcome to He Read, She Read, the podcast where a couple of married bookworms discuss what they're reading and learning. Today we're discussing Bad Blood by John Carreyrou, and perhaps our most mutual favorite nonfiction genre, investigative journalism. I'm Curtis. And I'm Chelsea. Since we're stretching out our fall buddy read, The Count of Monte Cristo, until November, we have this special discussion episode to fill in. First, we'll talk about Bad Blood, and then we'll explore why it was such a perfect intersection of our reading tastes. Of course, we have some book recommendations for you, and we'll give you an update on our fall buddy read progress. So let's get into it. So Bad Blood over the summer was kind of finding its way into pop culture. Like there was a podcast by ABC News that we heard about. There was a documentary on HBO. And the book had been out since May of 2018, so we missed it on the initial run. Um, But I think you and I have both heard a little bit of the critical reception about Carrie writing and the story and kind of how outrageous it was. Oh yeah, I had quite a few friends who were reading it and saying that they absolutely loved it. And it took me a while to convince myself to pick it up because it's about, on its face, it's about science and business, which are two things that I absolutely don't care to read about at all, Mm -hmm. especially in nonfiction. Yeah. And um, I just didn't know how compelling it would be, how much of that science would be a presence in the book. But... It was at the library on the army base, and we had just gotten here, and it was the only uh, place to go get books. <laughs> and it just seemed like, hmm, okay, I can try this. For people who ask questions on our Ask Us Anything for our one-year podcast anniversary about like how we come up with topics, sometimes that's how we come up yeah. with topics. <laughs> just they come up out it of happens. nowhere. So uh, we got it from the library, which means that we don't have a copy right now, and it means that I'm not going to remember anybody's names. Just putting that out there. <laughs> well, I helped you with one in the intro. Yeah. So there's Elizabeth Holmes. Uh, yeah, I'll be able to remember her and Sunny. Also, John Carreyrou is a character yes. in the book, which I liked. We'll I get know, to. I don't know if you like that from journalists. It was my but... favorite part of the book, but uh, those are the only names I'm going to remember. Uh, Sunny? Yeah, that's what I said. Oh, you said Sunny. Yeah. Um, but anyway, had it from the library. I read it within the span of maybe two days, and handed it to you and said, oh my goodness, you have to read this now. And you did, and you finished it in one or two days. And it was just one of those rare moments when we didn't intentionally choose a book to read together. Mm-hmm. It just happens that it clicked and it worked out perfectly. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I absolutely loved it. And I was so surprised by it. But then I figured out that it was the storytelling that was really what made it for me. Mm-hmm. So let's break it up a little bit. And um, we usually start our 
Buddy Reads with the discussion of the characters. So even though this is nonfiction, characterization is huge in this book. Well, not only from the reporting aspect, but then the persona and kind of the, you could call that a character, that the public face of Theranos was putting out. So Elizabeth Holmes, she modeled herself as like, the female Steve Jobs, where she's going out and dressing in turtlenecks. She's speaking in a very, like, deep tone like this. Like, people know how I talk normally, but then if I came up on the podcast and was like, I'm going to talk like this, <laughs> that's how she talks. And she, you know, had this perception that she was always working, that she was really into the science and knew everything that was going on. Really, she just knew from the get-go that she wanted to run a company and be rich and do something that would get her into the public spotlight. Well, I think you're projecting, though, because John Carrier doesn't even really make that judgment about her. He just presents what happened in the story, and he does paint a picture of Elizabeth Holmes, but he never really speculates on exactly what her motivation is. I even think he suggests that her motivation started as truly good and that she wanted to sort of be a humanitarian and change the world with this invention but that the science and everything couldn't keep up with it and she was just ready to charge on and she absolutely lost that original vision yeah like the idea that the idea and the vision was more important than like the product that they were actually coming up with yeah and she got so wrapped up in the fame and fortune and the success of it all that then she lost focus of what why she came up with it in the first place now how much of a role do you think sunny played in that or was it just elizabeth so hard to say because the um the book talks about their relationship but it's the outside looking in Mm -hmm. and so without knowing what their private conversations were like i think that's hard to tell right so Um, sunny was her like they had a romantic relationship but he was also i think the president of the company right or yeah he had a role in a major role in the company he was the coo so he was the operating officer so he would be like standing up in meetings her right hand man quite literally yeah so I feel like John Carrier does it in a good way where he kind of paints it. It could be either way. Like, either he's pulling the strings behind the curtain, like, one way or the other, or she's really the one that was in charge of the whole thing, and he's just along for the ride on her coattails. Yeah, and I don't really have an opinion about it. Like I said, John Carrier doesn't give a ton of speculation on Holmes and what her true motivation was or whether she's a you know, sociopath or whatever. He says, like, I'm not here to diagnose her. Mm -hmm. Um, He leaves that up to the reader, which I think makes for more fascinating conversation because you and I could seriously debate this entire podcast about the character of Elizabeth Holmes. Well, she's nuts. Well, that's one way to think of it. (laughs) Um, But I do think that that world really warps people too. And that having a seat with the most powerful people of course you're going to put on a face and lie instead of being embarrassed and just folding, right? Mm. Like she was sitting with some of the world's most influential men explaining this invention. That doesn't that didn't even work. Right. <laughs> so, it's all baffling and um I thought that the way the book was written and the way that the characters were 
painted very clearly, but yet not necessarily judged, um, makes this such a good book club book because you can seriously go back and forth. And I still go back and forth on what I think of um, Elizabeth and Sunny. So let's talk a little bit about some of the other standout characters because Elizabeth Holmes is the clear antagonist of the entire story, even though she's the main character. And we have a couple of heroes that really come from the lab and expose her. And I think that John Carreyrou does such a good job of putting them front and center when it would be really easy to keep the focus on this super corrupt couple. Yeah, and I'm blanking on a lot of their names. I think somebody was named Tom. (laughs) Yeah, there are more minor characters in the sense that there are more of them. They had to work as a group, but um, I think we can just like talk about them collectively. So the main character that they're talking about on the whistleblower side is Tyler Schultz, who is the grandson of George Schultz, who used to be the uh, Secretary of State under Ronald Reagan and kind of was this big investor in the program. And the pattern that you see is that Elizabeth Holmes does these interviews with these old influential white dudes and she's like young and blonde right and then talking about the science of you know this machine that i invented you just have a pinprick of blood and you can do thousands of blood tests whereas you would normally have to give like liters well not liters because that would kill you but like a larger supply of blood and tyler schultz is one of the scientists that works in the lab and he exposes her for being a fraud essentially like the machines that they were working on didn't work they had to prop them up in front of investors and fake the data with conventionally bought like blood testing machines um and he was he couldn't even talk about it with his family like he took it to his grandfather his, his, and grandfather his grandfather didn't believe basically him, like disowned him didn't believe him believed elizabeth over him um he got like attacked at work because they thought he was the one that was exposing all of the stuff to the you know investigators and the government he was being followed and sued threatened but it was through him that we got the connection with john carrieru and then more people started to get exposed and there was a couple other whistleblowers and documents that came out and i agree with you the most compelling part of the book was when john carrieru and inserting himself into the story and then started to follow along with where his investigation was going because that was what I was really interested in was, okay, we understand looking back at it that everybody's a fraud, but they got tons of people to commit millions of dollars. Like Forbes valued her company at like $9 billion or something crazy, even before they had ever sold a product or based like just based on people's estimations. Some of their own estimations and then that was what Forbes threw in there. She had Obama excited about her scientific progress and the future of the company. She had General Mattis on the board. Which is very ironic considering I just read his book. And that he's comes across as such a like no BS kind of guy. Yeah. But that was the compelling part about it is like at every turn you're like, oh somebody's gonna figure it out. Somebody's gonna see what's going on. And she just has them wrapped around the finger. And even to the point when they're exposed, they keep fighting. That was what killed me. By the end of the book, you're like, oh, well, surely they're just going to fold and give up. But she kept going, even when John Carreyrou's first article came out. Mm-hmm. And like, I guess that's something that's important to share is that this first broke as a 
like news story and as an investigative article and then of course john decided oh well like there's enough here for a full book well look at all the like he saw all the government connections like george schultz was a former secretary of state henry kissinger was on the board as well and was a former secretary of state they had two former secretaries of defense william perry and jim mattis they had admirals they had senators they had everybody there people were concerned because guess what everyone people own newspapers you know, and so then when it was like, oh, the story is going to break, some of the huge people who own news sources were concerned about this story coming out because they were also involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah, far-reaching consequences, and it really exposes so much more than just the company of Theranos and the fraud. I think it shows a really toxic environment of how we treat the next upcoming big thing, a toxic environment of who is in power and what power can do to people, how fear plays into doing the right thing and how that kept people from coming out with this information. I mean, there's there are so many deeply human themes at play in this story. I mean, we're kind of delving into the stuff that's sticking with us about the story a little bit. But... I thought we would go into plot and structure because you were talking about the part of the book where John starts to insert himself. Yeah. So we get, um, early on, we know something's off because of the way that John Kerry Root introduces Theranos from the perspective of someone who just left the company. And then we get to see the backstory. We get stories from people who knew something was just slightly off and we see it progressing to a climax And then just when you think like, oh, something's going to be exposed or the story starts to slow down a little bit because it's just like corruption after corruption after corruption, John Kerry Rue comes in and is like, and that's when I started investigating. And then the (laughs) perspective switches to him telling the story of how his investigation came out and how he had to work around Theranos and sort of the story of him overcoming a lot of obstacles in order to tell the story in the first place. And that was my favorite part of the book. Yes, because like they threw so many lawyers at him being like, hey, this technology works, it's amazing, Like, and the stuff that you're investigating like, isn't even a thing. So they were just trying to kill the story before it ever went anywhere. Elizabeth Holmes took out a story, like an op-ed, in the Washington Post where John Carreyrou is was going to be publishing this. At, to combat his story, like, before it ever came out. So the odds were stacked completely against him, and he was able to persevere and through because he just knew and had talked to enough people to know that their stuff was going to hurt people. Like, they were talking about putting these devices on helicopters in war zones, like in Afghanistan and Iraq, and using them to, like, as triage tools. And had even said, like, hey, these things are being tested by the military when they weren't. So like that, when I heard that stuff, I was like, no, like no Mm -hmm. no matter what happens to you, you need to go to jail. You understand the repercussions of what that would look like Like, on the battlefield. You need to go to jail at that point. So we're kind of painting him like a hero and, you know, maybe in our eyes he is a little bit, but that's not how he paints himself. He does a really good job of telling the story of how he and the um, publication had to overcome all of these obstacles, but he also does a really good job of having the spotlight on the whistleblowers and the people who were inside the company and who were inside the company and um, 
came out with the truth and worked with him on the story to expose Theranos. And yeah, and that part of the book just came at the perfect time when we really needed a tone switch because I was getting so sick of Elizabeth Mm -hmm. and we needed the switch in perspective. It just, the storytelling blew my mind. Yeah, I think it's the rising and the falling action where you're like, this, so much of the legal stuff is happening, so much legal stuff is happening. Oh, somebody with a conscience has found out Mm-hmm. something's going to change and it, nothing happens and then the same thing like more corruption more corruption more lies somebody finds out and then nothing happens and, and it wears you down yeah you're like how long are they going to get away with this because it starts in like what 2009 something like that they went on like this for probably five or six years and were well on their way to making a lot of money and putting these things like they had in walgreens like, Walgreens paid so much money mm-hmm. to Theranos to put these in Was that Walgreens or CVS? No, it was Walgreens. Okay. And they had so many, like, they put them in stores, they had little testing areas, and they were so invested, and you're thinking, how did I not even know about this? Like, that was a question that I had, is just, how did I not know that this was a thing? Well, and when, uh, when the story broke to... I, I know it was on NPR, but even though I was listening to NPR every day to and from work, I missed it. So I hadn't heard anything about it until the book came out. Mm-hmm. And I think that's true for a lot of people because, well, the book did come out when there's a lot of other stuff going on in the <laughs> news cycle, so it's easy to miss. Um, but yeah, it is kind of one of those, like, so many people missed so many signs And it's a little disheartening to think that it's so easy for people to get away with stuff. Yeah. And I think uh, we read this not too long after watching the Fire Festival documentaries. Yeah, very similar. So we had also sort of seen that example of obvious, like, white privilege and wealth privilege uh, making these people extra super believable. I mean... Not everyone would be automatically given a blank check like Elizabeth Holmes was. Right. There's perks that come from being from Stanford and Silicon Valley and being... White and blonde. White and blonde. Yeah. Uh, So I guess, yeah, our question here, what's sticking with you? That's something that has really stuck with me of so many people are like, it's the most shocking book ever. And yeah, it is shocking in some aspects, but I wasn't at all surprised that like powerful people were letting stuff happen like i wasn't too shocked by it right you got to think these people have so much money yeah that they're gonna just throw stuff up against the wall and hope it sticks and i wasn't even that super surprised that she got away with stuff no because she was seemed like such a smooth talker and able to like like go talk to somebody else and get another million dollars. Go talk yeah. to somebody else and get another million dollars. I think the shocking part comes from the lengths that the company went to to silence people. Yes. The fear that people felt um, when trying to expose the company and just how hard Elizabeth fought to the end, even after Carrie Rue's article came out, uh, and how powerful the fear of missing out was for all of these people who ignored 
the lack of evidence, ignored that there was nothing to show for all of her claims, and just wanted to get in on it because everyone else was getting in on it. Exactly. That, I think, is sort of the um, shocking part. Not necessarily that she got away with it. Uh, There are other people getting away with plenty of other con schemes right now. Um, But just how huge a role the fear of missing out played for these powerful, seemingly smart people. Yeah, and we'll say, like, she and Sonny aren't getting away with everything completely. Like, there are criminal charges. Oh, not charges. anymore, yeah. There are criminal charges. There's going to be a trial. So she's going to get her day in court. Uh, and, you know, innocent until all that. But it's part of, I think, the culture of Silicon Valley and that if you are behind the curve, you're going to miss out on all the millions of dollars. So people look at Apple, they look at Microsoft, they look at Facebook, and they just want a piece of all that stuff. So, and then you look at all the people that she got to surround her and buy in on her product, and they're like, oh, defense contracts, obviously, because Mattis is there. Um, Walgreens bought in for like millions and billions of dollars, so it's going to be in your local corner store. We've got to get in on this now before we lose mm-hmm. out on everything because our competitors are going to hear the same pitch. And it moves so quickly. Yeah. And particularly the healthcare field, that's so frightening to think about. All of that money wrapped up in healthcare because this is something that is supposed to help people be diagnosed earlier, to feel better, to save lives. And if it fails, you're talking about literal lives at stake. Yeah. And so it's so much more than money wrapped up in the healthcare field. Mm-hmm. And the multiple looks at this story, whether it's the podcast or Carrie Rue's reporting or the miniseries, or not the miniseries, the documentary, goes into like, did anybody die from either being misdiagnosed or having a false sense of security? Mm-hmm. And I don't think they're able to like definitively prove that. But they tell they tell stories of people that got tested by a Theranos device and they're like missing out on a cancer diagnosis or, or something narrowly like that. escaped dying because they got a misdiagnosis, but then they went back for testing somewhere else, and thankfully, before they were put on medication that would have killed them, they found the correct information. I was so. I was more affected by one of the lead scientists who was trying to like stop it, and then was driven to the point where he committed suicide. Yeah, that was a real sad part of the book. Yeah. Um, and I, I think there were other factors at play in his depression. Completely. But it, it does show what a toxic work environment can do um, for mental health. Yeah. And for someone who might have already been predisposed to mental health issues, um, that kind of environment was just absolutely too much. It was terrifying. Mm-hmm. I think that's one of the things that sticks with me, and this is an example that I've used over the past couple months since summer, is that when you're looking at leaders, you got to look at it from multiple different sides. Like, it can't just be somebody who are the prime good examples. You need to look at what bad leadership involves, how toxic organizations become toxic, and things that you can do to combat those. Like, like you can go in and not intentionally have a Theranos relationship between your employees and your higher level leadership but then you can be like Sonny and elizabeth where you just don't take criticism you don't listen to people who are giving you the advice as the subject matter experts and then people don't think that their opinions are valued and are forced to take other means so 
it, it was important for me to look at that from like a management perspective just to make sure like if people who know what they're talking about are telling you something you probably should just listen and there was a reason they didn't is because they're you know sociopaths <laughs> yeah something like it also correction before we get emailed to correct the correct terminology is died by suicide oh right rather than committed my fault another thing of note i think i mentioned earlier that this makes such a good book club discussion this was actually a book club book for the online book club that i run on facebook for some of my long distance friends and family and uh everybody jumped on this one i don't always get a lot of activity in our discussion posts because some people are just like lurkers and they just like to read other people's thoughts and stuff but this one it felt like everybody really got in and had something to say in the conversation Mm -hmm. and this was a great book club book so if you haven't read it and you've listened this far into the episode or even if you have and your book club is looking for something that will really spark conversation and sort of I don't know spark of fire under your butts because sometimes book club gets a little stagnant and you read the same types of books all the time and you have the same types of discussions um i think this one is just different enough especially if your book club's been reading all fiction pick this one up because it is not your average nonfiction book right it's a compelling story like you can see it from there were multiple times where I was like, okay, they're going to get caught. Like, when is the point at which they're going to get caught? Yeah, it's page turning. Yeah, it's, it's like a thriller. You know it's going to be at the end, but then you're just waiting for the last straw that's going to expose everything wide open. And I, like I said, that was the most compelling part for me was like all the bumps in the road that could have brought them down and they just kept going. This episode is brought to you by Libro FM. You know we love audiobooks for road trips, chores, or walking Penny around the neighborhood. We also try to avoid purchasing books on Amazon. That's where our favorite audiobook app, Libro.fm, comes in. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite indie bookstore. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including new releases, current bestsellers, and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro FM, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as Audible, but you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. To get started, all you need is a smartphone and the free Libro FM app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from the people who know audiobooks best, local booksellers. Listeners of He Read, She Read podcast can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one month. That's three audiobook credits for the price of one. And get this, it's the same price as Audible. Exactly the same price, but with a better mission. We've made the switch to Libro.fm and hope you will too. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter the promo code H-R-S-R. Or go through the link in our show notes. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. So this conversation about Bad Blood brought up a, another component of our nonfiction reading life where we realized that we both like reading investigative journalism. Yeah, and I didn't really discover that until like maybe the last two years where I started, first of all, trying to read more nonfiction, and then I had to decide which kind of nonfiction I would like. 
And it turns out investigative journalism is my favorite. And uh, I think that just is because typically uh, investigative journalism is super story-driven. Yes. So Wikipedia describes it as a form of journalism in which reporters deeply investigate a single topic of interest, such as serious crimes, political corruption, or corporate wrongdoing. And this investigative journalist may spend months or years researching, preparing a report, and practitioners sometimes use the terms watchdog reporting or accountability reporting. And I think that's the important part is like these big powerful people might think they're getting away with stuff, but there's these watchdogs or these people that will make sure that they're accountable from the press. And then that's kind of their civic duty and responsibility. So that's the appeal that I like about investigative journalism. And then the kind of crossover, like we've talked about with some people that are in the might be fiction or thriller based and they're looking to read more nonfiction. It's because a lot of these stories are like, the truth is stranger than fiction type of thing where people thought they were going to get away with some outlandish stuff and the story that comes out of it is just that compelling and there's kind of like a mystery element to it because it's investigative and actually a lot of mystery novels will have an investigative journalist working uh to solve the mystery or sort of like you know bugging detectives or whatever yeah um or sometimes they are the detective yeah here see (laughs) um and that investigation piece i think if you like mysteries and you like solving a puzzle you like seeing how people put pieces together then investigative journalism is a good segue into nonfiction because there is that mystery element there's that element of detective work and digging through to find the truth and Uh, I definitely think that's where the crossover is for me. Right. And for me, I just like seeing powerful people get their curmuppets. Yeah. Uh, We both are big fans of like justice stories. We do love justice. Yeah. (laughs) And there is definitely that element with investigative journalism of uh, typically there's bad guy and uh, or there's like a secret that needs to be exposed for the greater good. And that's, you know, that's really satisfying to read about, especially right now. (laughs) I, I also just think it's the power of good storytelling and investigative journalism pieces. If people are going to read a news article, it needs to be well-written and story is what keeps people reading. So that element of just really good, solid storytelling is something that investigative journalists are experts at. They're really good at putting the pieces together in a format that is engaging and readable and understandable. I mean, I feel like I understood the basic science behind the Theranos product without being a scientific expert. Mm -hmm. And that's thanks to a writer who can put it in normal people terms um, and show how it's so vital to the story. And uh, John Carreyrou is a great storyteller, so I was really happy. But it also helps that the science was too good to be true. And then it was was basically (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But something that you brought up is like these stories start out in their infancy as like articles and like multi-part pieces typically there are some books like i think uh killers of the flower moon uh that one david gran that's his name right Mm. (laughs) uh i think that was just a book to begin with so uh it depends on the writer 
Sometimes they write it as an article and then turn it into a book later. Sometimes it just goes straight to a book. Right. Or just an article and just like an expose piece. Mm -hmm. Or these days, uh, sometimes it can just be a podcast. (laughs) And fun fact that I learned, um, listening to a podcast lights up the same exact areas of your brain as reading does. So if you scan your brain while you're reading and you scan your brain while you're listening to a podcast, your brain's going to look the same. Now are this science or like actual science? This is actual science. Actual science for sure? Okay. <laughs> yes. All right. Well, you can trust us guys. We know what we're talking well, about. Well, the science was there with listening to audiobooks and reading on paper. And so I think that translates to podcasts pretty well. Okay. All right. So let's wrap up this conversation with some comparisons to other books and give everyone some more recommendations if they liked this book and they like investigative journalism or they don't know where to start. Uh, let's give some suggestions for what they can read. I've got two. You've got two. One of my favorite examples of investigative journalism and really great storytelling is Seven Fallen Feathers by Tanya Talaga. And this details... Uh, seven stories of missing indigenous teens in Canada. And it's really heartbreaking, um, the stories, but the way that Talaga tells the stories with such a gentle touch, yet harshness and exposing the politics of Canada. A lot of people think Canada is like, I don't know, the promised land. It's like, oh, nobody's racist up there. Everything's all good. We all love everybody. Uh, But actually, there are some really major issues with the way that Canada treats its indigenous communities. The same with America. Um, And so while this is a Canadian story, uh, there are tons of parallels to um, American indigenous um, groups and uh, stories of missing indigenous teens and, uh, it's terrifying and those stories really need to be told. So this is an example of a story of justice, a story of exposing the truth and really excellent pacing and details. Okay. Uh, I'll kick off with probably the gold standard of investigative reporting books. And that's all the president's men by Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein. So I've never actually read this, but I've seen the movie. You have it on your shelf, though, don't you? The book? Yeah. Maybe. I don't know. I think you do. So many things on that shelf. (laughs) It's a black hole. Um, But it's essentially the reporting behind the Watergate scandal um, and then the Deep Throat investigation that eventually brought down the Nixon presidency. So Woodward and Bernstein were a reporting team um, that got the story got the whistleblower investigation. Nobody really believed what was going on with them. Um, And then the careful explanation that they took and care and dedication to like say like, look, we have this information. The American people deserve to know about what's going on so that they can understand it and who is their leader led to like most of the American people being behind the impeachment of President Nixon and then led to his resignation. So it just shows the power that journalists hold. if you're interested in like a political thriller or just some good reporting about the 70s and things that brought down the Nixon presidency, you got to start with the original. So you got to go with Woodward and Bernstein. And they're still writing books today. Yeah, they're still writing books. Um, 
still writing articles uh, about modern politics. So, yeah, I think it's a timely one to pick up. Also, the movie's very good. Robert Redford. Classic. All right. Um, My other one is also political. Unbelievable. My front row seat to the craziest campaign in American history by Katie Turr. And this is her... It's a little bit memoirish um, because it's her own personal story of following the Trump campaign as a reporter. And uh, it is indeed a crazy ride. Um, I recommend it on audio because I believe she narrates. And if you like memoir and politics, um, this one might even be a little bit dated now, but well, no, actually with the, um, 2020 election coming up, I feel like it's probably a good one to listen to and just kind of refresh your memory of what happened during the last one. Um, but I really, really liked this book and, uh, it's been a while since I read it, but I do remember really liking it. And that was one of my first forays into the genre of more journalistic writing. And um, yeah, I think uh, if you're curious for an inside look at that, pick it up. I will also, for my next one, use one of my first forays into the investigative journalism genre, but it's from 2006, so... I was on the train a little bit before you were. Um, just a little. Just a little bit. Um, so this is an example of something that I talked about where it started off as investigative reporting in a newspaper and then turned itself into a book. So it's Tiger Force by Michael Sala and Mitch Weiss. Uh, they were awarded the 2004 Pulitzer Prize for investigative reporting for their investigation. So the articles are probably four or five that were released covering this unit in Vietnam. So it's called A True Story of Men in War, um, and it's based on this small group of an experimental unit that was kind of trained to insert behind enemy lines, become one with the jungle, and I say that in quotations. But it's like the LERPs. So if if people know what those is, it's long-range reconnaissance patrols. So they essentially had a long leash as far as rules of engagement. They could do whatever they wanted, and they were just supposed to go deep into Vietnam and kill the enemy. And it went completely haywire, went crazy. People started collecting body parts and just indiscriminately killing civilians. People that wanted to talk about it were done away with. Um, And it just became this, like, stain on the unit and the army that they kind of just buried, where they're like, hey, these guys are going crazy in the jungle. We can't really deal with them. So the story remained hidden for decades until there was an investigation by the army into a guy uh, who had been discharged, and there were rumors that he had been collecting body parts like ears and other like heinous stuff. And then they started digging and interviewing people, and then there were records, and people were like, yeah, I was in that unit. It was crazy. Like They would just go into random villages and shoot everybody. So Which the- sounds like a war crime. Should have been, but statute of limitations, unfortunately. Mm. So... Uh, it's been a while since I've read this. I don't think anybody was charged, unfortunately. Um, a lot of the guys that were the most heinous contributors to the violence ended up dying uh, before the story came out. Uh, and it's really just a sad image of the Vietnam War where these guys just completely went haywire and were like just went crazy. And then, wow. the, and then the army tried to cover it up and then 
got exposed. And this came out in 06 when everything was happening in Iraq. So it was kind of mm. like a bad, another bad PR moment for the military. So that's why I picked it up because it was kind of like that era before I joined where it was like, you got to figure out the stuff that's happening today and how that reflects back to how things were in Vietnam because it, had, yeah. it hadn't been that long ago. Wow. Um, and that's why we need investigative journalists yeah. because it's not right for the government to cover stuff up. Well, you know, stuff like that. Um, if, they're, uh, if they're keeping some top secret things that are our safety, like, you know, our social security numbers, keep it secret, but... The Chinese already have my I know. social security number. I know. Um, other examples are, um, like, the movie Spotlight, where it talks about the Boston Globe investigation into the Catholic Church and the priests covering up the... Um, abuse. Abuse for children that had been going on for decades. Um, All the President's Men, I already mentioned. And then I really like State of Play which is a movie with Rachel McAdams and Russell Crowe about investigative reporting. There's a young Ben Affleck. I, I say young Ben Affleck because it was like 2006, but... Uh, it's not ringing any bells for me. You, I don't think you've ever seen it. I saw it with my dad when I was in college. Okay. Yeah, but it's a great movie. Do you want to talk about a couple of the books that are on your to-be-read list? Sure. Um, so one that I want to get into, because there's a Hulu show about it, is The Looming Tower... It's Al-Qaeda and the Road to 9-11 by Lawrence Wright. So this kind of dives into the history of the organization. I think the U.S. involvement with Al-Qaeda um, and like the Mujahideen is something that I studied when I was in college, um, like how the U.S. gave stingers to the Mujahideen in Afghanistan uh, to fight the Soviets and then how that kind of made its way into the hands of Al-Qaeda. Um, and then also Five Days at Memorial by Sherry Fink, which is about Hurricane Katrina and a hospital that got flooded and how they worked uh, for five days at a flooded hospital to try to save people. Without power, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that one's on my list too. Five Days at Memorial I would really like to read. I might... It's really long. I've heard it's really good, but it's a really long book. Um, so maybe audio for maybe. that one. Um, an audio book that I've heard is really fabulous is... Um, the Only Plane in the Sky, Yes. an oral history of 9-11, which we have on our Libro FM account, and we also have in hardcover. Uh, and I think that's one we'll both read at some point. I don't know if... So the audio is supposed to be really good because it includes multiple narrators and real audio clips. I feel like I might be too sensitive to actually like listen to, to the that. audio clips. Yeah. yeah. Um, reading it might be a better experience for me, but maybe I'll read it and maybe you'll listen to it uh, so that we can kind of compare. Uh, we'll see. Those are always fun comparisons. Do you want to do a quick check-in for our buddy read for November? Yeah, for let's the... just quickly check in. Um <laughs> I'm a little behind. Yeah, me too. Uh, so I, remi- reminder, yeah. we're both reading The Count of Monte Cristo. Um, how are you? I, I feel like, and this has been confirmed to me by people who have read it. Um, I talked to a guy at work who reads The Count of Monte Cristo every year. Oh my. And he says the Penguin translation that we have is yes. the best. So we're, we're on track. I do like the translation. It's really good. Actually, the audiobook that I downloaded from Hoopla is decent as well. Um... And I downloaded the audiobook because I was getting behind in the reading and it was just daunting to look at this huge book and feel like I had to catch up. Mm-hmm. So I thought maybe going back and forth between audio and 
the paperback would be good for me. Um, it's been a really busy season for the last like three weeks and basically like since we started the book and, uh, it's been hard for me that my reading time is only the Count of Monte Cristo because there are other things that I want to be reading. Mm -hmm. And typically I can read more than one book at once, but that's just not how it is right now. So I think that's something that's hindering my reading. I like it, but I think there are other books that I would love more if I could be reading them right now, I guess. I don't know. (laughs) It's a bookworm dilemma. So I'm behind. Um, The audio is really good. I mean, it reads as Shakespearean to me. I can see some shades of the Odyssey. Uh, I can see why it's a classic. Yeah, and I'm enjoying reading it after I had read The Black Count prior to, so I kind of got the history of Dumois' father and how that plays into this story. And I'm waiting for the revenge part. I think uh, you're going to be waiting for a while. I'm just I'm just saying. Like, <laughs> I, I like the buildup of this is what's happening to... We gotta we gotta figure out how we're gonna say his name. Is it Edmond Dante? Da, Don, I think it's Don. Is it Dante or Dantes? I'll have to uh, listen to the audiobook and let you know. We're gonna have to get the actual like as close to French translations as we can get. Well, you're already mispronouncing Dumas, so it's <laughs> fine. It's Dumas. You say Dumois. Yeah. It's Dumas. Moi, like French. No, ma. No, moi, like no. French. <laughs> <laughs> moi. Ma. It's ma, du ma. Ma moi. <laughs> so, so far, I'm enjoying it. Yeah. It's uh, just taking a long time. I think it'll be fun to talk about when we get there. Um, we've got, what, like another month and a half to finish it up? Yep. Um, I do want to catch up with it. I'm hoping the audiobook provides a good way for me to do that. Because it's just, I haven't been picking up anything besides audiobooks lately it's just i don't have reading time right now well you're also back to work and commuting so that helps yeah so that's where we're at with the count of monte cristo um we definitely have people who are like way ahead of us in the reading or who are on schedule because they're better students than we are i guess nerds (laughs) uh but it's fun to hear that people are enjoying it and uh i'm excited for that buddy read discussion yeah if uh, you are enjoying He Read, She Read, will you please take a few minutes to write a review on Apple Podcasts to help more bookworms find our show? Uh, we'd be so grateful for those reviews. They really make our day. It's so fun to hear from you um, and what you love about the show. But it also uh, helps spread the word and helps us climb the bookish charts. Did you see that uh, Apple Podcasts changed the charts as well? So now a bunch of the podcasts that are in the books category aren't actually about books, and it makes me upset. I don't look at the charts. Okay, well, anyway. (laughs) Where are we on the charts? Well, we're off because there are a bunch of other podcasts that aren't even about books, but they're in the books category with us. Thanks, Steve Jobs. Ugh, the nerve. You want to read the last little part? Sure. Uh, You can connect with us via social media or email we're on twitter and instagram at he read she read or you can send us an email he read she read podcast at gmail.com you can also sign on as a patron at patreon.com slash he read she read thank you all for listening and remember the couple that reads together procrastinates their buddy read together it happens sometimes for those of you that are on pace congratulations good job keep going we'll catch up with you maybe (laughs) 